Yeah, do you know? Are you raised a left-handed hitter? This episode of Baseball Tangents was originally recorded on the 18th of May, 2017. Hello, Jeff Hayward. Hello, Kyle Lewis. We've got a a quick show here today, and I want to talk a little bit about the Reds, the Giants, and minor league baseball, and anything else that comes up, of course. So diving right in, I was reading an article the other day about my boy Joey Votto from Travis Sawchick, who is formerly a Pirates beat writer and now writes for Fangraphs and generally a writer I'm a big fan of. And he wrote about, he wrote this article called A Joey Votto Rarity. And this is something that I was aware of, but did not realize, I guess. I, I, I loosely was aware of it, but didn't realize how rare this was. And the thing that is rare. Well, actually, why don't you take a guess? What what would be a, a thing that Joey Votto doesn't do very often? A bunt. True. I mean, that's a good guess. Give me yeah, that's it. That's an okay guess. I I actually don't know how often he bunts, and I wonder if I could um could find a way to look that up. But uh, second guess, uh, switch hit. Never does that. Never does that. He is a left-handed hitter who throws right incidentally enough interesting yeah do you know are you raised a left-handed hitter because uh like that that type of thing you know my cousin my cousin uh was a baseball player he played baseball through grammar school high school and and through college and now coaches uh and as i recall he threw left and batted right and I think he did that because he wanted to hit against um did he want to hit against lefties because there are more lefty pitchers it, like you know what's what's the better option if you're a right-handed hitter which should you be should should you be um uh, you know are you are you better against a, a left-handed pitcher or a right-handed pitcher So the general theory is if you are going up against right-handed pitchers, which there are more of generally because there's more right-handed people in the world, uh, a lefty hitter has an advantage against a right-handed batter. And by... The, the lefty pitcher has the advantage. A lefty... No, no. So it's opposite-handedness favors the, favors the hitter. Same-handedness favors the Got pitcher. It. So... Got it. Ideally, if you were... If you threw right-handed you would learn how to hit left-handed and you would have an advantage there. And typically that's why you have switch hitters is that you, you are trying to play matchups, but there are more right-handed pitchers in the league. But uh, I don't know about switch hitting. That's a tough one to find, but I have found that Joey Votto has seven played appearance, seven uh, bunt attempts that uh led to three hits so i assume four would be like career career um wow yeah kind of uh kind of fun so and there's not a total on this This is kind of fascinating but um yeah his batting average when bunting is actually 429 
All right, something else he doesn't do, and this is my third and final guess, is uh, rest. Also true, but um, he he does play a pretty serious number of his team's games. Um, He, let's see here, in 2013, he actually played in every game. All-star and was uh, sixth in MVP voting. Um, But yes, he plays in most every game. The last two years, he's played 158 games. Um, that's, that's pretty good. No, the uh, thing that he doesn't do is hit infield pop-ups. Uh, before this, uh, past weekend playing against the Cubs, I guess maybe that was two weekends ago. Um, Joey Votto had hit seven infield pop-ups in his career. Damn. That's nothing. Yeah. In 13, 1,313 games. That's pretty pretty wild. And that's uh in five thousand six hundred and thirty three plate appearances. So if we take um some math here and we do eight into five six three three, that is um less than one tenth of a percent. It is probably more likely that you would get struck by lightning than Joey Votto would hit a infield pop up. What? Is that the is that is that the actual stat? Likelihood of being struck by lightning as I talk to you while I type. One in ninety six nine hundred sixty thousand. So that's um it is more likely that Joey Votto will get a pop up will hit a pop up then. Um I'm sure we could find a a statistic um that's better than eight and well, I'm sure we could find something. We could do that for the next show. But any which way, the interesting thing is that Kyle Hendricks got Joey Votto to pop up on a high fastball while it was only 87 miles an hour. It was still a high fastball, and it was a bad pitch that Joey Votto swung at, and that's not something he does very often anyway, but doubly interesting. Like he just he doesn't he doesn't swing at bad pitches or he doesn't swing at well, you said it was 87 miles an hour up. Isn't that kind of a, a well, you you want it up, you want it to hang a little bit, well, right? Well, uh, a fastball too high, um, a fastball more or less above the belt is harder to hit, but it looks really good to a hitter because it, it the ball just looks huge and ready to smack. But that's why you see guys swing under these high fastballs all the time, and that's a for me, I think it's always a fun out pitch is that high heat because people just, they can't stay off of it and very few players can hit it. Although Mark Trumbo hit hit one that was like at eye level the other day and he hit it as a home run, which was wild. So you just said, uh, you just said that a ball up looks quote huge. Yeah. In other words, uh, you have it, it, this the size. You have a, a much better grasp visually of what's going on with the ball and where its position is as it crosses the plate as you're about to hit it when it's up as opposed to down. Is that what you're implying? Mm-hmm. Exactly. And the closer to your eye level means it's it's easier for you to track it. But the the thing is, the high heat moving quickly is going to be difficult to actually hit because it's it's coming to a spot where it's not natural for you. You don't, you don't train your swing for hitting balls that are just below the shoulder level level. You, you really 
are training for hitting balls that are more like at waist level or just below that? Well, it, because that's where most are being thrown because it's harder to hit those. I I'm assuming. Exactly. Exactly. Is you train for the balls that most of the time are pitched, and so when there's a pitch that's different in some way, like high heat, for instance, or like Andrew Miller's slider, you you just do your best you can because it's not it's an exceptional pitch, not an average pitch. So that that gives a whole new that gives a whole new uh, uh, view of the curve, just because uh, you're dealing with the ball changing like in your field of vision vertically. Mm-hmm. And that's why both curveballs and changeups are particularly fascinating because they, they're balls that just drop. And so you have to follow the curve with a curveball. Um, there's like a changeup. It just kind of dies at the end of the pitch. And so unless you are lucky really, or a really good hitter, changeups are incredibly hard to hit. Um, because they look like a fastball out, so your timing is one thing. And then if you have a changeup that really has that that sinking motion, then you can that can become a really fascinating out pitch, or it can set up your fastball where people are looking for the changeup because they know that's your strong pitch. And then they're they're way they're just waiting, and the fastball comes in, and they're way behind on it. Yeah, so and we'll get back to Vado, but I'm going to I'm going to simplify for my own sake uh, that this the, the fastball is there to uh is there to to test your timing and the curve or well the curve change up and maybe even slider is there to affect, you know ch- uh, to to deal with your your positioning of the the ball being struck. Exactly. And knuckling. Yeah, knuckling is another you know motion. Like Mariano Rivera made his career on the cutter, which instead of moving um, in uh, height plane, is a ball that moved left to right. Or um, for Mo, it act- yeah, it moved left to right because it came in on right-handed batters. You know, I was watching the the Jeter uh, uh, re- retiring Jeter's number. And, um, I was thinking like Rivera was, was 42 and I feel like Bud Selig, uh, uh, retired 42 in like 2005. Have we talked about this? No. Um, Rivera was like the last guy to, to still wear 42 and 42 is retired for the whole league. Correct. And so, and 42 is also hung at every ballpark. And Rivera was an incredible asset for the for the the Yankees, and so one might make an assumption like, you know, that the Yankees would want to retire Rivera's number two, although it's already retired by the league. So how do you go about doing that? You throw two forty twos up at the uh, at Yankee Stadium. Um, I think that that's a it's a good conundrum, and I think what you might see is as opposed to retiring. Because the number is retired for Jackie, and that would happen in two thousand four, um, mm. and Mo was the last guy who was was wearing it. Um, the I think what they'll end up doing is either putting his name somewhere or calling like, um, you know the bull the bullpen or something like you know Rivera's home or something like that. Um, 
they have that's, uh, that's they cool. have named the closer awards the best closer in the league for each, for each league so for the AL it is the Mariano Rivera Trophy or Mariana Rivera Award and then for the NL it's the the Trevor Hoffman Award so those I believe are the two leaders mm-hmm. in all time stat leading and closes uh, closed games or saves rather. Um, all time stat save leader. I think it's those two guys. Career leaders and record saves. All right. Mo had 652. Trevor Hoffman had 601. And the next was Lee Smith with 478. But interestingly enough, there are a couple guys who are playing right now who could get there. Craig Kimbrell could. He's on the younger side. He has 268. Um, Francisco Rodriguez has 437. I don't think he's the same quality closer that Ryan Rivera um, was. Among players, Kenley Jansen has 197. You know, Kenley Jansen has... We're getting into the weeds here, but Kenley Jansen is absolutely destroying hitters this year. He has an... Who is this guy? Kenley Jansen, the closer for the Dodgers. He has a 1.5 ERA in, uh, he only has eight saves, no blown saves, but he's pitched 18, 18 games. And let's see here. He's given up 13 strikes or 13 hits rather four runs, three of those earned. Uh, but he has 33 strikeouts in 18 innings pitched this year. His, uh, let's see here. Well, yeah, he's not walked a guy. Basically, that's what's happened. How old is he? Or, like, how long has he been doing this? Because, well, some of these greats have, have longevity. Well, Kenley Jansen is 29, but he has been good. Uh, he was a seventh in the league for rookie of the year uh, in 2011. Seventh in seventh voted for rookie of the year. Uh, he was an all-star last year for the first time, but he has been... Kid's been good. Uh, in eight seasons, of which we'll say actually seven full seasons with the Dodgers, he's been with, worth 12 wins above replacement as a closer. I mean, he has only pitched a total of 426 innings in his career. That's innings per innings per war rate is pretty darn high. Anyway, hasn't walked a guy. Just being incredible. Talking about closers. Um, Francisco Rodriguez is 35, also known as K-Rod. I don't think he will get close to the record, but he'll get up there. Right now, he is he is fourth. He will probably get to third on the list, but I don't think he's going to get enough to knock off Trevor Hoffman. 601 minus 437. Makes a, he has, needs 164 more saves. So how many saves does Francisco Rodriguez average in a year? Uh, his peak was 62, but he usually sits in the 30s to 40s. So he needs four more good years. He's already 35. I don't think he's going to be able to to get up to number two. Speaking. I mean, Trevor Hoffman and uh, Rivera, they were like, they're like in their 50s. No, they were old though, right? Mo pitched through age 43. In his age 43 season, he did have 44 saves. 
Um, I mean, that's incredible. In his age 42 season, though, he was injured and only got five saves. And you you lose a you lose a save. Uh, uh, the save begins when your team is up, and you lose a save when the team is tied. Yes. Saves are actually complex, and I've just been reading about this in The Hidden Game, which is a fantastic book about the history of baseball statistics. But I want to say it was 79 when the current save rules were implemented. And it goes basically like this. If your team is winning and the tying run is on deck, or closer, right? The tying runs on base. That's also a safe situation. But the minimum threshold is the tying run is on deck, and your team is winning, and you pitch. I think it's even just need one pitch. Really, you could come in to get one out at the very end of the game. You would get the save. Another way that you could get the save, regardless of the score, if your team is winning, is if you pitch three consecutive innings and finish the game. So say your say your team's up fifteen to three, but you come in and pitch as a reliever seven eight nine, you get the save as well. So uh, so you only get a save if the score is uh, close and the tying run is on deck. Yeah, it's it's a three run three run leader less. That's crazy. I I would have. Uh, I guess so. But but you always you always call a save like who gets who gets a win and who gets a save no or like or or does the save replace the pitcher who gets the win? Uh, the save is a, in addition to the win. So the winning pitcher is the last pitcher to pitch when the team took the lead and kept the lead through the end of the game. The save is a metric of like the quality of a bullpen pitcher to hold on to the lead now. The save is a fine statistic, but it's also inherently flawed. Case in point, the Cleveland Indians, they have many good starting pitchers who carry the game through at least six innings quite regularly. Then they hand the ball over to Andrew Miller quite often, who will pitch seven and eight. And those are often innings where he's he's put in in very high leverage situations. He's not given the save. Typically, because Cody Allen, their closer, comes in and pitches the ninth. And if the game is within three runs, like, for instance, last night's game against the Reds, where the score is 8-7, to seven, um, or score is actually 7-7 seven, seven when Miller came in. So let's see. I actually don't know who got the... So Miller got the win last night because his team went up in the eighth. And then Cody Allen got the save because he pitched the ninth. But had the had the Indians been up before Miller came in, it would have been on Miller to keep the game close or keep the Indians ahead, but he would not have gotten the save and so or would not have gotten the win. So Miller is probably one of the best pitchers on that staff. And they have Cody Allen who's fantastic and Corey Kluber, former Cy Young winner. Not to mention other good pitchers. But Andrew Miller is probably by the statistics the least appreciated pitcher by traditional statistics. I mean, I think most people appreciate him because he's quite good and they saw him in the 20, 
16 World Series and 2016 playoffs being a total stud, but by the numbers, he's not really um, appreciated by traditional statistic, statistics. If we look at war, even war, he's not uh, truly appreciated enough for how good he is and how much he can really contribute. It's interesting. The you got a you got a good pitcher or player like that, and you know, for a, for a pitcher, I feel like if you have a lot of if you have a, a lot of backup, a lot of defense to back you up regularly, uh, your numbers are higher, and that's got to affect you know, like playing on a good team uh, has got to affect your ability to negotiate salary and so forth. Uh, for your benefit, as opposed to it, like, does this guy who plays on the Indians, is he just out of luck? He's screwed because his numbers don't show his true worth. Maybe because of a, the way we, we, uh, we, we track this information, B the defense that's behind him, see the, the, you know, the reliever that, that he's got, as you, as you said earlier, like, is he, is he sh- because of all this? Well, I don't, I don't think that, Andrew Miller is really out of luck. I mean, he's making $9 million um, this year, and then he is making another $9 million next year through 2018, and then he'll probably sign another good contract. Although he's 32, he is he's quite, quite good. And I think he'll sign another decently sized contract. And I, I think with regard to his finances, he's okay. He could probably be worth more, but he's, pro- he's probably fine. Um, he's not maybe not going to get a Mark Melanson size deal because I think that deal was silly. But the thing is that he's good. Teams recognize that, and they're going to try to keep him. I'm sure. Now it's hard to find the best stats, but there are stats that try to remove the team or remove other situations and show how good Andrew Miller actually is. I'd have to do a little bit of a little bit more. Uh, looking around to find the best splits for Miller that show how good he actually is. You mean that there are ways to remove or change stats that impact his uh, impact his true worth or his true like quality? Exactly. So like his um, what his value is by removing other situations, like when he takes over in a high leverage situation and gets out of it. Like how, how, um, how much does he succeed or what, how does he perform? So actually there is a leverage section in baseball reference. And if we look at high leverage, he has played in 252 games in which he had a high leverage situation and he has given up 146 hits and 155 runs. Um, 15 home runs in high leverage games. Let's see here. So the batting average against him in high leverage situations is 210. That's pretty good. I'm I would need some other numbers to compare that against, but that's that's pretty pretty good. The batting average goes up when we go to a medium leverage situation. Batting average against, of course, as 266. Are you doing these these uh, calculations on your own, or are you just straight up looking at a spreadsheet? I'm looking at a spreadsheet, and that spreadsheet is on Baseball Reference. It is dot com, mm-hmm. and we can 
we can look at it. So and the other thing, if we look at, so high leverage situations last, yeah. So this is where it gets interesting. So he started his career in 2006 and he struggled a little bit early on in his career as a starter, moved him to be a reliever. And here's, here's some fun numbers. In, from 2013 through 2016, his batting average against in high leverage situations, which means places where there are runners on, I believe, either second or third, less than two outs, um, and the score is reasonably close, right? What we would agree to be generally high leverage situations. In those situations over the last uh, four years, his batting average against 118, 169, 135, 180. That's the guy you want to have in there. I mean, basically what that says is eight times out of 10, he gets you the result that you're, you're looking for. So, um, that's, uh, that's a guy worth betting on. And that's, that's, that's one way to look at his, um, his value to the, to the team. If I look at as a reliever in 342 games, he has given up a career batting average of 177 in all situations. That's that's pretty good. I mean, that's that's pretty tremendous. Now, batting batting average is only one measure, and so we could we could look at uh, OPS. So on base plus slugging is five forty one. That's still pretty good. And BABIP, which is um, the batting average on balls in play, is two seventy four. So if somebody gets the ball in play, they're doing slightly better. The thing is, they're just not getting the ball in play that much. So Andrew Miller. Got it. So if you have somebody on base, he's he's uh, he's a, a little less on his game. Correct. So you get a little bit of anxiety. Say that one more time. He gets a little bit of anxiety if he's got um, men on base. Not necessarily. No, just that the batting average for balls in play. That like when people get balls in play, they actually have a slightly better chance of getting a hit. Whereas just people getting a hit. Uh, getting the ball in play is not that likely in his uh, against Andrew Miller. So is that more a re- reflection of the the defense? It's, behind it's you? a combined statistic because it it takes into factor the defense behind you, but also the quality of the pitch that makes it a very predictable, you know, easy ground ball or a predictable line drive, right? So because if it, if it, the ball is in play, but your batting average is still pretty low, so you you just isolate down to those balls that actually make it in play and then how often do those actually turn up to be something it basically rules out strikeouts um and walks um well walks aren't really part of batting average anyway because they are not counted as plate appearances just for fun if we look at kenley jansen high leverage for him uh opponent's batting average is 169 so equally as good yeah he's been good his whole career really um, in these high leverage situations. And if we look at, he's only ever been a reliever. He was a catcher actually coming up. This is Kenley Jansen we're talking about. His um, career batting average against 171. So I lost Andrew Miller here. What was his, uh, as a reliever, 177. So these guys are probably, um, comparable in many ways the thing is kenley jansen has pitched a lot fewer innings and probably innings per appearance which is something i don't know how to look up here innings per appearance kenley jansen is probably at one or close to one and i think andrew miller would be probably closer to two 
which is an interesting thing. If you think about your bullpen guys, you probably want more guys who are capable of going two innings than going one, but having the hammer at the back end is still still seen as being very important. Speaking of, that's the thing the Reds are really experimenting with this year is that they don't have um, someone who really has that role as the true closer. And the two guys who are probably the best pitchers in the bullpen are Raziel Iglesias and Michael Lorenzen. And both of those guys routinely pitch two innings uh, in an outing and often are called in to do uh, six, seven, and then eight, nine, which they're both really good. And it's it's a lot of fun to see the last four innings of the game just get closed out by two really good pitchers and to see these guys both go because they both have um, had a good amount of experience pitching as starters to see them as these long men or late inning long men and pitching against righties and lefties with no real compromise is, is pretty, pretty great. What is it that keeps uh, a closer's pitch count uh, potential so low or, or a relievers as opposed, you know, yeah, a reliever or a closer. These two guys you're talking about on the reds that are capable of going two innings as opposed to a closer that can, pitch you know like a max of uh, 21 pitches or something like you know what i mean well the idea classically has been that a closer is going to come in and pitch one inning when you really need to get three outs and he's going to throw incredibly hard and just be a guy who can overpower and outmaneuver and outwit these other players who have been tired from playing a whole game the other idea, and this is just classic baseball, is that this closer is going to be the specialist who does this one job and can do it basically in three out of four games. He'll go and pitch and pitch incredibly well and incredibly consistently for you. So by having a very specific role, someone becomes a specialist and then trains themselves to do that one thing really well. So you probably only need two pitches. You need to be either incredibly crafty or incredibly hard thrower or both. Mario Rivera, crafty, because he had the um, the cutter that just ate people up. But he threw decently hard as well. These guys who are pitching multiple innings, in contrast, uh, are starters that have transitioned the bullpen that have usually more than two pitches and are able to go up against uh, a greater number of hitters. And this is kind of funny, but are able to go and sit down in the dugout and then go back out and pitch whereas a closer is not often asked to do that the closer comes out of the bullpen does it and then hopefully has the end of the game um it's just the the classic role of a closer especially as the save became a statistic that people were tracked against and then got paid against the closer became a coveted role as like the person who is the the hammer or the final chapter or the person who is going to to take the other team's last gasp of hope and take it away. But in this new world, we have guys like Andrew Miller, for instance, sometimes your highest leverage point in the game is actually going to be in the middle of the sixth inning. And so you could hypothetically bring in your closer there, but there is something to be said for bringing in someone else who is also incredibly good in these high leverage situations, but who can pitch for a couple innings so that you keep your momentum you don't have the interruption of changing pitchers and that you can um you can 
um, depending on if you're playing AL, NL, you can try to work the pitcher spot um, in your batting order as as appropriate. There, there are a lot of opinions on closers and the save, and I I would just say as my uh, kind of wrap up note on this topic that I think the save is a statistic that was valuable in its time, but is no longer as valuable. I don't have a good suggestion for measuring the clutchness of a player or the value of like, is Andrew Miller more valuable than Cody Allen on the Indians? I would argue that he is, but I don't have a good statistic to back that up. And this is just in, uh, in watching, watching the game. Yeah. I mean, I assume, I assume there's a, there, there was a time when, uh, the closer was, well, you, you said it, you, you said, uh, like heat or, uh, the ability to change things up. And you probably have a situation too where if the players haven't hit against this closer often, just because the quantity of pitches that the closer does ever is so low that like it's, it's, you know, it's just the change might, might be affecting them, right? Might be affecting the hitters. Oh, a hundred percent. Time through the batting order is a, a huge boon for hitters on the third time through a batting order, especially the starter, you see batting average go up quite a bit. And I'm, I've read about this. I'm sure there's some good stats and studies we can show, but um, typically a, a starting pitcher is going to do a lot better the first two times through the order and the first time through the order, uh, typically. And so a closer is is coming in, and uh, Craig Craig Kimbrell, for instance, is a guy who you know what you're going to see, or Rollis Chapman. That's a great example. I mean, he's got a slider that's okay. He's got a two seam that's okay, but really you're going to see a hundred mile an hour four seam from him that's what it's going to be and he kind of throws the ball a little bit of everywhere but it's going 100 plus miles an hour so while you know what you're going to see you haven't seen that previously in that game and every time somebody goes up to see 100 miles an hour i think they are thrown thrown for a loop because it's a um it's a pretty intense experience i mean i'm i'm, I'm sure that uh you know, the people today are students of the game too. So they're, they're looking at every statistic possible to understand, or at least the, the staff is, and then, you know, communicating that down to the players, how, how somebody is going to pitch. So just knowing all of this information up front, you know, with, with the, the trajectory velocity, the, the movement and whatever that you get through data, through, through the sensors in the ballpark, uh, the team going into a, a series is able to, to like study what to expect, which is going to affect or, or like, you know, degrade the, the like surprise factor that a, a closer once had in the past before all this data. While, while that's true, a Chapman is still an incredible closer and Kenley Jansen, who's been playing for, um, well, a good while here. What is it? He's been playing since he debuted in 2010. You would think, people know what Kenley Jansen throws, right? I think he throws a two-seamer and maybe a cutter, um, if I recall correctly. But let's just go over this again. In 18 innings this year, he has 33 strikeouts and no walks. With only two pitches? Are you saying he has only two pitches that he goes to? I think that's basically what he does. Um, cut fastball at 98, and his other main pitch is a slider in the low 80s. So I, I was wrong. So cutter and a slider, not a cutter and a two seamer. Yep, that's uh, basically what he's got. He has a, he he does have a sinker, but it's uh, pretty low, um, 
let's see here. He throws, oh, here we go. You ready? His cutter is, um, for his career, his cutter is 88.4% of his pitches. His slider is 7.7%. And his changeup and his sinker account for um, 3.6% of his combined, 3.6% of his pitches. So he basically 95% of his pitches are slider cutter. Yeah, and cutter and cutter being 95% of that 95%. Yeah, and so those are um, going to go uh, their pitches with movement in the opposite direction. It is pretty... Um, we, we, we start with Joey, Joey Votto and his pop-ups. Did we wrap that up? Because we just went uh, in a, uh, a lot of circles. I think, I think the summary is just that Joey Votto doesn't hit pop-ups. He's an amazing hitter, and um, I'm happy that he's playing for the Reds, although he's making an absurd amount of money to play first base for the Reds and to not hit pop-ups. Does he... What, what, what accounts for his line drives or... Uh, uh, and, uh, and, and, uh, fly balls. Uh, I think that that's a longer discussion, but briefly it would be, uh, his swing path is relatively flat and his pitch selection, his, his, this is a hard one for me to look up right on my head, but there's a thing, thing called, um, Z and O swing rate. So it's basically swing rate inside the strike zone is swing rate outside the strike zone and Joey Votto's swing rate outside the strike zone is notoriously low. I wonder if you can, uh, I wonder if you can track what a pitcher's doing, uh, like pitch by pitch and, uh, predict to some level of certainty, the next pitch he's going to pitch or, or what the catcher's calling or, or whatever. It's hypothetically possible. But I think that that's a that's a tangent for a another time hypothetically. So I've just looked up Joey Votto and his. So just for fun, here we go. Joey Votto's Z swing rate. So this percentage of pitches that are in the strike zone he swings at sixty eight point seven. The percentage of pitches that are outside the swing outside the strike zone that he swings at is twenty two point seven. Uh, he does swing at forty two point five percent of the pitches. Uh, that he sees generally, and this is for his career, uh, 10 years of career. Um, his, now here's, here's fun. He, he swings at 42% of the pitches, uh, that he sees. He makes contact with 79.5% of the pitches that he sees and, um, four pitches that he swings at. Yeah. That he's, that he swings at. Correct. And then, um, four pitches in the strike zone, Joy Votto makes contact almost 85% of the time. So that I need to, to look at some other players um, to pull that up uh, as a comparison, but just for fun, Miguel Cabrera, who I think we could, we, well, I would say he is a, um, a pretty good hitter, right? And if we look at batted ball, and we look here at plate discipline. Okay, so this would be a um, a thing to try to look at. If I, I want to put these in one chart so I can look at them more easily together. So for uh, Miguel Cabrera's career, which is 14 seasons, a little bit longer than Joey Votto's, um, 
he swings at 30% of balls outside the the strike zone and 71% inside the strike zone. His contact rate is just a little bit better than Joey's for inside the uh, inside the strike zone. Um, and overall contact percentage, 79.2 for Miguel Cabrera, 79.5 for Joey Votto. So they're making good contact. Um, career batting average for... Uh, actually, fun one, BABIP. Career BABIP for Miguel Cabrera, 347. For Joey Votto, 356. So one of the guys who's the best hitters of our generation, Miguel Cabrera, who has got one or two triple crowns now. Career batting average on balls in play is actually below Joey Votto's. Career batting average is just above. And if we look at slugging, which is something Miguel Cabrera does more than Joey Votto. Joey Votto walks quite a bit more. Cabrera has a 560 career slugging line whereas Joey Votto has a 538 we look at walks Cabrera has 1027 in his career and Joey Votto has 1026 Cabrera's career is four years longer and has one less career walk or one more career walk rather than Joey Votto so that that's put your put that in your pipe and smoke it um for pitch selectivity right there yeah and uh I think on that note that's uh we're gonna call that an episode Mr. Jeffrey This has been a Kidlo Audio production. If you'd like to hear more of this or our other shows, go to audio.kidlo.com. That's K Y D L O. Thanks for listening. Be well.